please join me in Luke chapter 9. We will look this morning at verses 37 through 45. Our sermon is entitled Majesty and Death. And our key words for our worshipers in training are spirit, majesty, and men. Now at this point in the ministry of Jesus through the gospel of Luke, we have become well acquainted with Jesus' miracles. He's healed, he has cast out demons, he has raised people from the dead, he has calmed a raging storm, he has fed thousands upon thousands of people. We have taken the time to consider each of these great miracles and a few others. And each miracle is unique, and each serves its purpose in the gospel account of Luke. We've considered several times now the fact that what we see in the Gospel of Luke is only a very small sampling of what Jesus was actually doing from day to day. Literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were witness to, and many of them recipients of, the miraculous work of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon once said, All our Lord's miracles were intended to be parables. They were intended to instruct as well as to impress. They are sermons to the eye, just as the spoken discourses were sermons to the ear. Hopefully you've learned as much as I have thus far through these miraculous accounts, and you've been encouraged and and challenged by what Jesus has been teaching us. Most vividly, we've seen that Jesus' miracles are a display of his great work for our salvation. And in all of the miracles, we see most vividly that Jesus does all of the work that is necessary to deliver us from weakness and condemnation, from danger and from sickness, from death and Satan and evil. Christ and he alone can provide for our great need of salvation. You see, Spurgeon was pointing out that the the miracles of Jesus are painting for us a picture to see our condition. We are the lepers and the paralytics, the sick and the dead and the demon-possessed. We are the ones who need Jesus' great and miraculous work to be accomplished to make us whole to show us compassion, to to heal and to touch and to rescue and to save. And what we've seen so often is that Jesus is more than willing just as much as he is fully able. Brothers and sisters, we have a great Savior, don't we? And I hope that you think about him and talk about him and pray to him every day of your life because we desperately need more and more of Jesus in our lives to see him as he truly is, doing what only he can do. Now, if you recall from last week, Jesus was on a mountain with Peter and James and John, and he was transfigured. He was having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. And his face shined brightly like the sun, so much so that even his clothing, it is said, was a dazzling white. And the glory of Jesus, the divine glory of Jesus, was pressing through his humanity and displaying for the three disciples to see his divinity. 
Now remember, this was for the three disciples with him. The highest of heights of their experience with Jesus. It stuck with them. So much so that Peter recalls this experience later in Second Peter when he writes, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We ourselves heard the voice of the Father from heaven. For we were with him on that holy mountain. It was a pivotal moment that would prove absolutely necessary for the faith of the disciples in the months ahead because they needed to see the glory of Jesus, that they would have great assurance, that they would have great faith when things got bad because they were indeed about to get very, very difficult. So let's look at what happens now in the hours following that account of the transfiguration, beginning in verse 37 of chapter 9. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming... The demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed for them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now the first thing we see is a great descent. Following the transfiguration, we're really presented with this striking study in contrast from what we saw the disciples experiencing on the mountain to what we now see in the valley below. This really is the constant story of Jesus, isn't it? A story of descent for the good of mankind. We recall, of course, the descent of Jesus from heaven to earth. From the glory of heaven to take on human flesh that in him we might live. Paul writes in Philippians 2, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking on the form of a servant, being born of the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Never has one descended so low as Christ to have descended from heaven down to earth that he might fulfill his covenant with the Father to die in the place of sinful men granting his righteous standing before the Father that we might live. From the glory of heaven, Jesus descends into the brokenness of the earth. And that is on vivid display as Jesus descends from this great mountain of transfiguration down to the valley below. 
Jesus moves from a place of communion with the Father to direct contact with the forces of evil. The contrast is so clear. At the top of the mountain, all is glorious. All is sublime. So much so that Peter wanted to put up tents that they all might stay there forever. And then the descent into the valley where all was confused and shameful. He descends from the fellowship he enjoyed with the glorified Moses and Elijah to some of the harshest and wildest discord on earth. On the mountain, he see, we see the king of kings in his majestic splendor. And in the valley, we see his disciples baffled and beaten. Heavenly beings above. Demons and unbelieving disciples below. You see, Jesus very quickly moves from that which is extraordinary to that which is very normal. The same compassion that brought Jesus from heaven to earth now moves him down from the mountain of glory to the valley of suffering and confusion and death where he was met yet again by a very large crowd. You see, the very mission of the mountain was to make all the more vivid the greatness of glory, the glory of Jesus, the glory of heaven, the glory of the Father who spoke. And also to show us the neediness of man, broken, confused, possessed, unbelieving, and unable. There are many who, like Peter, want to build their tents away from all of the sin and suffering of the world. But Jesus shows us quite clearly here, if you are to rescue those who are perishing day by day into the vast abyss of hell, we too must descend and be found where they are. There is a time of refuge. There is a time of rest. That's the very joy of the Lord's day, a rest from the cares of every other day, the beatings we endure in the sin-stricken world that we might instead focus all of our attention and all of our efforts on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But friends, it's only a day. We cannot tarry long on that mountain. Our communion will be cut short because we soon return as Jesus returned to our accustomed work of doing good in an evil world. In Jesus' life on earth, to receive honor and to have visions of glory was the exception. It was not the norm. To minister to others, to heal all who were oppressed by the devil, to do acts of mercy to sinners, this was the norm. And happy are those Christians who have learned of Jesus to live for others more than themselves and who understand the great truth that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now consider, as they're coming down the mountain, what an exciting conversation the three disciples must have had. Treasuring in their hearts all that they had just seen and experienced, Peter, James, and John, they were surely full of questions. What was this relationship between Moses and Elijah and the Messiah? What will this mean for us? What is he going to do next? They certainly did not understand it all, but 
were no doubt exhilarated by this experience. Yet their excitement is soon squashed as they reach the base of the mountain and come face to face with demonic power. It's a desperate scene we see, isn't it? We learn from the parallel account in Mark's gospel that there was a heated argument taking place among the teachers of the law and the lawyers were on attack in Mark chapter 9. And out of all of the noise and all of the confusion, a lone voice emerges. Teacher, I beg you, look at my son for he is my only child. A literal rendering of this is rabbi. Look on my son with mercy, for he is the only child I have. And if you consider all that's written about this event in the Synoptic Gospels, you see a very, very heartbreaking picture. When the demon seizes the boy, the child screams out, and the spirit throws him to the ground in convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth and becomes stiff as a board. Many times he's been cast into fire or water by the evil spirit. And he is covered with scars. Even worse, the spirit has made him deaf and mute. And so the poor boy can only live inside himself. In other words, he can see and know all that's going on around him, but he cannot hear or speak. His father concludes here in Luke, it shatters him and will hardly leave him. How awful. Can you imagine watching your child experience these horrific events without being able to do a thing? And so the man called on the disciples who themselves were unable to provide any relief. They were powerless to do anything about it besides they hear all of this, this begging of this man. But they can't, they can't do anything. Why? In fact, you remember at the beginning of chapter 9, Luke wrote that Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and gave them authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And they did it. They did this. Just a few days prior, they were out doing this very thing. Why not now? What happened? How is it that they were full of power and authority and now all of a sudden they're completely powerless? The answer lies in the opening phrase of Jesus' dismayed response in verse 41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? It's clear, isn't it? The failure of the disciples wasn't because of ability. It wasn't because of intellect. It was because of a great lack of faith and living upon the divine omnipotence of Christ. The disciples stood unable. They stood impotent. They did their very best, no doubt, repeatedly probably using previous formulas that proved so successful to them before. But they had subtly moved from trusting in God by faith to moving to faith in the process. That is to say, to faith in themselves. 
They had cast out demons before. Certainly in their minds, they had determined that they could do it again, but their lack was significant. They lacked in prayer, as Jesus briefly notes in Mark's account of this same instance. True prayer is an act of faith. It's an abiding and a trusting in God and all of his provision. Admitting our need of him, humbling ourselves to admit our desperate position of dependence upon what he alone can provide. And when we pray, we are reminded of who God is and what we are before him. We remember that he is the source of our provision and all that is good comes from him and him alone. And vital, authentic faith exists only in the life of a dependent, perpetual prayer. I've never met a person who says they are weak in faith and yet strong in prayer. It doesn't exist. But think about and be challenged by this truth. The unbelief and the prayerlessness of the disciples was developed in just over a week. How frequently and how quickly we drift. It's true, isn't it? So often we enter into circumstances in life with complete dependence upon God and a recognition of our great need for Him. And yet when we gain confidence, when we gain a sense of our own abilities, we find that our prayers are often less and less while our self-efforts are more and more. We see here with the disciples that the true fruits of self-dependence are all for naught. A complete inability to really produce anything of true, lasting spiritual fruit comes when we lack in faith and prayer. And we have yet another reminder of the importance of living upon God instead of living upon ourselves and the the rotten fruits of self-righteousness. We must decrease that Christ may increase all the more. We must see ourselves as nothing that we can rightly see Him as everything in every situation for every need. And a life of constant dependence upon God is a life lived in such a way that we make visible the great work of the kingdom of God in this world. We must regularly confess our sins. For that is the surest mark of a true Christian. We are to pray that God will protect us from the evil one. We must ask God to provide for our needs, to conform our hearts and our minds to his word and to cause us to walk in wisdom and in truth that he might be glorified in our lives all the more. Let it never be said of us that we are weak because of a lack of faith and prayer as the disciples, but rather that we recognize our personal weakness and depend and are strengthened by Christ alone. And we see this very ability of Jesus displayed in this passage as well. Jesus' ministry in the world required that he do battle with the evil one. This is a pattern that is established early in Jesus' ministry at his baptism, remember. And then at that time of his baptism, just as we saw last week in the transfiguration, the voice of heaven announces him to be the Son of God. 
And what happened immediately after the baptism of Jesus? He went into the desert to be tempted by the devil. What happens immediately after the transfiguration of Jesus on the great mountain? He comes down the mountain to do battle with the devil. It is clear that Jesus came. He descended to overthrow the devil and his work. Now, this is the third demon possession we've seen in the Gospel of Luke. And as we've seen already, the devil's work is to enslave and to distort human beings. Humanity was made in God's image, but the devil would twist us into his own. That's what he sought to do in the garden with our first parents. And that is what the demons are doing all throughout the gospel accounts. These accounts in the scriptures of what Jesus encounters with Satan and demons is a very clear indication that we are up against a formidable foe, not some silly man in a red suit casting little darts our way. The power of evil, as we see with this young boy, is to scar and to destroy men and women who are made to bear God's image in this world. And so it's very important that we recognize what is really going on here. The power of this demon is very real, and it is obvious that this boy is absolutely tormented and helpless. But what is even more apparent is Christ's absolute power to conquer evil, to conquer the devil, to defeat sin. And as always, the demon here recognizes exactly who Jesus is. This was his last stand. And so we see in verse 42, he pulls out all the stops. He throws the boy to the ground in a convulsion. But we read, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. Now, the clear, the clear emphasis is on the ease with which Jesus succeeds in this battle. The demon's power over the boy in the strength of man and in the self-effort of the disciples goes unchallenged. But in the presence of Jesus, the demon is helpless. With just one little word of rebuke, the devil's servant is sent far, far away. Brothers and sisters, we need not fear the evil forces of the world under the command of Satan. Because the true sovereign ruler of the world is our father. And our king is his great son, our savior. We sing of it all the time, don't we? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. This is the very thing we see in Jesus' encounter with the demon. So take heart, Christian. You are in the powerful, capable hands of Jesus. And the result is a response from the crowd that should be our response whenever we see the obvious work of God in our lives. All were astonished at the majesty of God. 
This is significant because this is the same language that Peter uses in his retrospect of the transfiguration, describing it as his majesty in 2 Peter 1. Peter saw Jesus' transfiguration and called it a display of his majesty. The crowd saw Jesus cast a demon out of a boy and they were struck with the majesty of God. Notice here, Luke attributes the work of Jesus to God. He's calling him God. Luke wants us to consider the majesty above and the majesty below together for both belong to Christ. One commentator writes, what was visible only to those chosen three on the mountain is here visible to a greater number. So in the power and majesty of Christ, we see that what the disciples were completely unable unable and incapable of accomplishing, Christ was far more able and did so with great ease. He's an amazing Savior. Now notice at the end of verse 42, Luke writes that Jesus gave the boy back to his father. He heard the plea of the man and he healed his son. He cast the demon away. What should a father or a mother do in a case like this? They should do as the man before us did. They should go to Jesus in prayer and cry to him about their child. He was a desperate man. And he turned to the only source of hope that he knew, and it was Jesus alone. He did the right thing in faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I know far greater today than I did even a week ago of the great power of prayer and intercession before God on behalf of our children. The great balm of healing is to lay ourselves bare before the Father in times of great sorrow and to know the prayers of other saints on our behalf as God heals and restores. What is a father or a mother to do when our child is sick, when our child is rebellious, or when our child is hurt or or missing, or when a child has died in the womb? What are we to do? The only thing we can do, the only right thing to do, cry out to Jesus that he would do what only he can do, to heal, to protect, to make wise, or should his will be otherwise to comfort and to heal the hearts of their parents. We may be saddened by the providences of God in the events of our lives, the events the lives of our children. And this week, my home has been filled with sadness at the loss of what would be our third child, but we are not without hope or comfort. We have a God who has entered into our suffering by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from the curse of sin and death by sacrificing himself on the cross for our sin. God is personal. He's he's a personal God. And even in this, he can and has ministered to his people. There are no accidents. And the fact that this morning we are looking at the response of a parent in the face of difficult providences in life in a broken world, even as I have considered this text for today, I myself have received encouragement in the word of God 
for which we're very thankful. And I hope for you, for you who has unbelieving children, for you who has a child who is sick or suffering, for you who will endure these pains and many others, for you who thinks back on the loss of your own child, either in the womb or as an infant or even later in life, may we all remember and delight together. We have a God who does address the curse of death and who brings real resurrection hope. The center of the Christian gospel to poor and weak and struggling sinners like us. And we, like this desperate father, need Jesus. And he will bring about the greatest end for the greatest good, for his great glory. We all need first-hand observations of the majesty of Jesus in our lives and in the lives of those we love. Because days will come when the majesty of Jesus seems so faint. But you see, one of the great blessings of personal and corporate worship is that it takes us to the Mount of Transfiguration where we see the glory of Jesus on display. If only for a small while before we have to go back into the valley where needy souls suffer under the cruelty of sin without Christ. This in turn reminds us of the incomparable wonders of God's grace and encourages further obedience and worship within us all. Now our passage ends with Jesus turning to his disciples while the crowds continued to marvel, reminding them of what he had already previously stated in chapter 9. This is the climax of the whole encounter and is a matter of utmost importance. We know that because of how Jesus addresses the disciples in verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears. I think I'm going to start talking to my kids that way. Jesus is preparing the disciples for what was yet to come. What they still failed to grasp was that Jesus was not ascending some earthly throne to rule, but would instead ascend a cross to die that his kingdom would be forever. He would be delivered over to men who had as their great desire to torture and to kill him. He was, we saw previously, preparing them for reality, for a reality that wouldn't be pretty at first, for a reality that wouldn't make sense to them at first, for a reality that was sure to challenge every fiber of faith that was being built into them during the great days of Jesus' ministry in their midst. Luke writes, they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. They were afraid to ask because of their confusion. And they were afraid to ask because surely this would have implications for their lives too, as Jesus' closest companions on earth. The parallel account in Matthew, rather than citing fear, says they were filled with grief by Jesus' prediction. So apparently they were afraid of hearing something that would make them feel sad. In contrast, the Lord of glory 
Jesus Christ, who manifests the majesty of God above and below, embraces the cross, willingly suffering the penalty of sin in our place for our sake. As Paul exclaims, may I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Whether, wherever the Lord went, whether onto the Mount of Transfiguration or down into the troubled world below or onto Calvary's tree, He did the Father's will perfectly and displayed His glory. And this is the contrast that is abundantly clear in the text. A contrast between the applause and comfort of the world and that of the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus came into the world to confront evil and unbelief. By which route will He conquer it all? Will it be by the way of worldly glory and power to ascend a throne on this earth? The way the crowd desired him to go? Or would he go by the way of death and weakness and humiliation? Jesus makes it plain that his way and the way for all who follow him is not the way of glory. No, it is the way of the cross. All of Jesus' victories were achieved by way of the cross. It was there that he defeated and disarmed the devil. He did so by paying the just penalty for our sin so that Satan could no longer accuse us or torment us with fear. Jesus' death determined the whole of Satan's empire because his atoning work sets us free and reconciles us to God. So while his heel might be bruised, the head of Satan is crushed forever. And it is also by way of the cross that Jesus overcomes our great unbelief. Because we are very much like the disciples. Filled with unbelief. But the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of Christ's elect that they, that we are born again so that with enlivened hearts we receive what we otherwise loathed and despised. And all through our lives this work of the Spirit goes on and our unbelief is more and more and more driven out and replaced by willing faith and thanksgiving and joy. So the cross of Christ is the banner of Christ. His death brings life. And as a Christian, it is not by the way you rise to the top of the corporate ladder, by the way you make the game-winning basket or a million-dollar putt, It's not through fame or possessions or prestige that you reveal the glory of Christ to the world, but by the way you trust him in the valley that is overshadowed by the mountain of glory. The way you trust him when life comes at you from every direction. You do not have to become rich or have perfect smiling children or become famous in this world to serve the kingdom of God. He calls us to the cross of Christ, rich and poor, that we find and follow him. You know what's so encouraging to me here? How Jesus deals with his unbelieving, incapable disciples. They were so slow to hear and understand. And that may surprise us at this point. We are apt to forget that they did not know what we know. 
They had all sorts of habits of thought, national prejudices in the midst of all that they were seeing and being trained to understand. But in their eyes, the throne of David did so fill their eyes that they could not see the cross. And above all, we forget the enormous difference between the position we occupy as those in history, looking back on the crucifixion and the scriptures, over against the position of the believing Jews who lived before Christ died and the veil was torn in two. Whatever we may think of it, the ignorance of the disciples should teach us something. Two things. One is to know that men may understand very few spiritual things in this world and yet be true children of God. The head may be very dull when the heart is very right. Grace is far better than gifts and faith far greater than knowledge. If a man has grace enough to give up all for the sake of Christ and to take up the cross and to follow him, He shall be saved in spite of much ignorance. Christ shall own him at the last day. And finally, let us learn to bear with the lack of knowledge in others and to deal patiently with beginners in faith, just as Jesus did. Let us not set our brothers down as having no grace because he does not exhibit clear knowledge. Has he faith in Christ? Does he love Jesus? These are the principal things. If Jesus could endure so much weakness in his disciples, we must surely do likewise with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We see a great display of what Jesus has come into the world to accomplish in this passage. The great compassion he has on all on those who suffer, on those who are sick, and those who are heartbroken, and those who are slow to understand. Luke has linked together this great transfiguration and this descent down the mountain. And the message was that Christ's glory is revealed by the way of the cross. By faith in sorrow, by joy in darkness, by calmness of spirit and forgiving love in the midst of tribulation. It is by the cross that we are revealed, revealing to others a kingdom and a Christ full of glory, full of majesty and power that overcomes death by death, by bringing life upon life. Does the news dismay you the way that it did the disciples? Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. If you have success and glory, yes, go ahead and give credit to God, but understand that heartache and pain will come to you. They are always with us. In them and not in our own glory is where our transfiguration takes place. May I never boast except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. Boasting in him who has defeated sin and death forevermore. For there alone 
the salvation of God is revealed to us and through us to the great crowds that grope desperately in the valley of evil. May it be, brothers and sisters, that our experience on our Mount of Transfiguration, where we see the glory of Christ day by day, is brought low to reveal to a lost and dying world the great hope that is ours in Jesus and his great work on the cross for us. Let's pray together. Father, our hope is in you and you alone. Our hope is in the great, majestic, and glorious work of Jesus Christ, who descended from heaven to earth, from glory to a valley of death, that we by his death, might be made alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. Not by our own doing that we might boast. May it be said of us that our only boast is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, we delight in the saving work of Christ, to overcome our unbelief, to overcome the power and the work of the devil. May we rest in Jesus. May we hope in Jesus. May we find our great satisfaction in Jesus. And may we, like the desperate father, come to Jesus, not depending on our own abilities as the disciples did, not seeking to accomplish anything by our own will and our own efforts, but always continuously looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, with trusting hearts, with eyes and hearts of hope, and with a great desire to see you glorified. Father, help us to not be a faithless and twisted generation, but to be those who see with the eyes of faith the great cross of glory and that we see through death brings great life and that is life eternal. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power and majesty of Christ that we might rejoice in him forever and ever.